0: The Lifestylist, episode 158, featuring
1: Jeff Chilton. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. This here episode of The Lifestylist Podcast is made possible in part by my friends over at onit.com. I was recently out in Austin, went to their headquarters, recorded a couple podcasts, and uh, these guys are doing it right, man. Their whole operation over there was just mind-blowing. From their gym... To their corporate headquarters, just how the companies run. Now, I've been using their products for years. Uh, no, no doubt you've you've heard me talk about them. Things like Alpha Brain, which is their flagship nootropic. You may have even tried that yourself. But these guys are just growing and growing so fast, and their product line is just insane. It's all made with earth-grown nutrients, and it's all science-backed. They have a beautiful website over at onnit.com forward slash Luke. By the way. And uh, I don't know. I'm just really into it. I'm really stoked to work with these guys. I've been on a couple of their podcasts. A couple of those guys have been on mine. And we're becoming like family, man. So whether you're trying their energy bars, protein shakes, their krill oil, creatine, uh, flavored MCT oils, which is one of my favorites. My little guilty pleasure is to to, to, uh, make my coffees taste like those funky old coffee creamers that were really bad for you. Well, their version of it's really good for you. And uh, their uh, product New Mood is a really great one. I think that's my current favorite. And everything they do is just dope. They have you know all kinds of fitness products and club bells and kettlebells and all that stuff. It's just madness over there. So head over to onit.com. Forward slash Luke and you will get 10% off all foods and supplements. And for a limited time at on it.com forward slash Luke, you'll get to receive a 14-count bottle of alpha brain to try for free. And once you try the alpha brain, you're gonna be hooked. I'm just warning you. That stuff's gonna light your brain up and make you a more badass athlete, fitness guru, entrepreneur, biohacker, whatever your thing is, Onnit can help you. On it.com forward slash Luke. People often ask me how I do all of the crazy stuff that I do, how I produce all these podcasts largely on my own and all the social media and video content, my fashion school. I'm a pretty high energy guy, I'm 47 years old, but it takes a lot to do everything that I do. So I'm of course a huge fan of supplements and my favorite recent supplement, if you can even call it that, it's really more of a food, is by a company called Athletic Green. So I reached out to them, said, hey, I love your stuff. I wanna get you on the show sponsor me, help support the show. They're down, I'm down. And now I'm turning you on to something really new to me and awesome, although they've been around for quite some time. So Athletic Greens is a fantastic product. And because you listen to this show, if you're interested in trying it, you can get 20 free travel packs valued at $99 with your first purchase. Sounds pretty dope, right? So go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Luke and hook yourself up. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Luke. You can live the dream like me. Get all your superfoods in one scoop every day. It's fantastically easy and powerful. Check it out. What a long, strange trip it's been, folks. Here we are with another episode of the Lifestylist Podcast. Today's episode features Jeff Chilton, and we're talking about one thing and one thing only, my friend. And that is mushrooms, fungi, fungus, shrooms, tripping, spacing out. (laughs) No, we're not spacing out that much. I was about to though. I recorded this out at Paleo FX in Austin, Texas, out sitting on the lawn near a little lake with Jeff. And we did a full on trip through the history of mushrooms. This is going to be an insane episode. I've been dying to put this one out because I love mushrooms, man. Back in the day, I used to trip balls on the regular, as you'll hear in this episode. So I love mushrooms just for fun, or used to. And, uh, and you know, micro dosing now, every once in a while. I mean, very micro, like not getting high, kind of past that phase in life. But they do have their place, as you're going to find. And then for many, many years, I've been using. Chinese herb style medicinal mushrooms. So your chaga, your reishi, lion's mane, uh, cordyceps, all of that kind of stuff. And Jeff is just the OG. So I'm stoked to finally be giving you like the Bible of mushrooms. I think this is just the be all end all. We're just going to put a cork in the whole mushroom conversation because everything you need to know is here. But before I do, you know how I do. I've always got a couple announcements. I have some uh, some events, man. One of them is tomorrow night. God damn it, August twenty second, I'll be speaking at Next Health in Century City, and I'm going to be talking about biohacking the city using nature. How to survive in the city. It's kind of a piggyback on last week's show about EMFs. You know how do we how do we get in alignment with nature and thrive physically, mentally, emotionally, physically? Uh, you know, in all those ways, I think I just said physically twice because I'm not thriving mentally. What? I need to go have some cordyceps. But anyway, come see me tomorrow at Next Health, August 22nd. Yes. And then the next night, August 23rd, I'll be out at one of my favorite biohacking spots in LA called OsteoStrong. This is where I spend every week. Once a week, I go out there and I build bone density. I've gained 40% in strength in like nine sessions at OsteoStrong. It's bananas. Come see me speak there about all things consciousness. That's in two days, August 23rd. Then I'll be at Mercado Sagrado, the coolest festival in the goddamn world, October 13th and 14th in Malibu Canyon. Then I'll fly out to New York for Whitma Live. Can't wait for that. Super lit situation. That's October 25th. And then I'll be doing a special workshop at Rama Institute in New York City. October 27th, in celebration of my birthday. That's going to be a huge Scorpio consciousness download festival over there. Rama, October 27th. Okay, on to the guest. Jeff Chilton studied ethnomycology at the University of Washington in the late 60s and started working on a commercial mushroom farm in Olympia, Washington in 1973. When I was three years old, y'all, student OG in the mushroom game. He co-authored the highly acclaimed book, The Mushroom Cultivator. In 1989, he started Namex, a business that introduced medicinal mushrooms to the U.S. nutritional supplement industry. Here's what we talk about in this extensive conversation. Overseeing the growth of 2,000 mushroom crops over the course of a decade, that's 40,000 pounds of mushrooms altogether, yo. Oh, wait, no. No, wait, I read that wrong. That's 40 million pounds of mushrooms altogether. Dude knows his stuff. Starting the United States' first mushroom conferences, the world governments that have made plants illegal, how our education system shuts down the human mind and creativity, the importance of set and setting with psychedelic experiences, surreal microdosing experiences, and how microdosing relates to McKenna's stoned ape theory of human evolution. China actually began cultivating mushrooms as far back as the 12th century. The economics of commercial mushroom cultivation versus medicinal supplement production What can go wrong while growing organic mushrooms? What makes each species of mushroom unique? There's thousands of species of mushrooms in the world, but we can only cultivate 25 of them. How some of the most popular medicinal mushrooms, cordyceps, reishi, chaga, and lion's mane, are used to heal the body. What makes them work? Why reishi is the mac daddy of all adaptogenic mushrooms, and if you're only going to take one, this would be the one. And then finally, why Jeff bought a professional Geiger counter after Fukushima and the extraction methods that different producers use for different medicinal mushrooms. So as you can see, man, this episode is going to give you everything you could possibly ever want to know about all different types of mushrooms. That's what's fun about it. I've heard a few podcasts that other other people have done, and it's been uh, you know all about psychedelic mushrooms or all about the the Chinese herbs. But in this one, we really cover the history of human use of mushrooms and why we still want to have them in our lives today. So it's going to be awesome. Before we jump into this uh, shroom fest, I want to invite you to join me on Tuesday for my next episode. It's a very special one with Candice Kumai, Wabi Sabi Wellness, the Japanese art of perfectly imperfect living, number 159. That's next Tuesday. I don't want you to miss that show because it would just be a crime against humanity if you did. So please subscribe to this podcast on whatever device you are listening to my voice on right now. All right, so next week, Candace Kumaya, number 159. But right now, I want to get some mushrooms into your head. So please join me on this journey with Jeff Chilton. Jeff, good to see you again. Welcome to the show, dude. Luke, pleasure to be here. So you guys listening, we are sitting outdoors in downtown lovely Austin, Texas. This might be the first one I've ever recorded uh, on location outdoors. Uh, So I'm really excited about this. We're looking at a body of water. We've got a Texas flag, an American flag flying high, which I always love. uh, Barefoot on the ground and... Doesn't seem like there's a lot of wind, so the sound should be good. I just want to apologize ahead of time if you occasionally hear a, (laughs) you know, it's the price you got to pay as a listener to allow us to get some natural sun. So here we go, dude. We're going to be talking about your life as a mushroom grower, seller, connoisseur, user, uh, because it's something that's becoming, you know, thankfully for you, I'm sure quite popular now. So how did you get into the business of Chinese herbs, medicinal mushrooms, and all this to begin with?
0: Well, you know, I I was born in Pacific Northwest, very green. Green because there's lots of water, lots of forests, lots of mushrooms. So they're around me the whole time. And, and, you know, it's kind of interesting because I, I was raised in Seattle, but at one point we moved to Phoenix, Arizona. And when I was in Phoenix, Arizona in high school, a friend of mine went to Mexico. And he came back from Mexico. He went to school, summer school in Mexico. And, and, you know, I was like, oh, man, that sounds so cool. He comes back and he says, dude, he says, when I was down there, I I was introduced to these things called magic mushrooms. And I was just like, magic mushrooms? That is just incredible. And, and for me, I, I'm, the 50s was all of these kind of Walt Disney, cool Treasure Island and all of these Stories and magic mushrooms just resonated with me so much and and then we moved back to to Seattle and I went to university there and what was happening then of course we 're talking about the sixties and magic mushrooms were kind of a big thing at that point, and they were growing we found they were growing right there a- and uh, that became part of my study at university. I studied some mycology but my 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 actual real study was anthropology and how are mushrooms used in cultures worldwide. And part of that use was shamanism. So I'm studying this in university. In fact, there were some books about mushroom use that I had to go to the rare book room in the university and sign in to get these books to be able to read them. So that's kind of like where it all began for me. And then after university, I'm like, what am I going to do with a degree in anthropology? Well, not not too much. But I went to my mycology professor, and at that point, I thought, well, growing mushrooms would be really cool. And he says, hey, there's a mushroom farm 60 miles down the road. Go down there and talk to really? the owner, and, and uh, you might get a job.
1: Were they growing, like, culinary They're mushrooms? They're growing...
0: The button mushroom. Oh, okay. You know, it's a big farm. They're growing this, but, and I'm just like, man, that just sounds so cool growing mushrooms. I go down there, I interview. Uh, a few days later, he calls me up and says, hey, you got, got a job. Come on down. I was just
1: like, I was ecstatic. What year would have this been? That was uh, 1973. Oh, wow. I was three years old. Yeah. And exactly. you're, you're getting and, and, into the mushroom game. And
0: I had just come back from spending a year and a half in Mexico just kind of bumming around Mexico and and actually going back to the mountains looking for magic mushrooms and things and now I'm back I'm jobless I'm living
1: in my father's basement <laughs> when you were down in Mexico I'm assuming your your search was successful and you were able to find uh, psilocybin mushrooms down there absolutely yeah, yeah what about yeah. peyote was that part of the thing well I did encounter peyote down there too but my real search was uh, for the magic mushrooms and yeah. you know what did it, they, it, indigenous people in the, in the countryside down there partake was that part that's, of the culture
0: that's, that's actually uh, where i was i was out in the country i was back in the mountains and and yeah that's what was going on the indigenous people there but but remember they were mostly used in healing ceremonies so th- these were curanderas these were native healers and this this history down there that was a cool thing about it is that this rare book i was talking to you about there was a a new york banker who went down to Mexico in the 50s. He was he was doing a big study on mushrooms worldwide. He heard about psilocybin mushrooms still being used in Mexico. He went down with a French mycologist. They spent the next five summers down there. And summer, because summer's the rainy season, that's when the mushrooms grow. Interesting. And, and here's the thing that's so interesting about it, Luke, is that, is that back then, they wrote up a big article with photos and drawings in in what was called Life Magazine. I it, remember Life Magazine. Yeah, yeah, it was a big, just mainstream magazine. And wow. and on the cover, they said. Amazing discoveries, <laughs> mushrooms that cause vision discovered. Wow. Can you imagine? Wow. Can you imagine that like if it, it was uh, some mainstream publication doing that in the 70s or 80s or right. 90s?
1: Big discovery. At this point, had psilocybin mushrooms become illegal and classified as a, you know, schedule one substance along with all of the hard drugs and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: That all, that all came because, because
1: one of the things, uh, you know, Timothy Leary
0: actually got wind of this and before he really started up his studies, he went down to Mexico and some of his first trips were with uh, psilocybin mushrooms. Right. Yeah. so, So it was like, it was one of these discoveries that had been literally hidden In the mountains of Mexico for hundreds and hundreds of years, because when the Spaniards came down to Mexico, they saw this as blasphemy. Because the natives down there called these mushrooms God's flesh. Wow. wow. (laughs) Can
1: you imagine? God's flesh. I would, me... <laughs> I would think that's a pretty true statement, actually. Oh, I can yeah. see why. And, so, and it... so, these, so the natives down there, the indigenous Mexican people living out in the hills, they, to them, this is a this is a sacred ritual, as you said, for healing. So they're not like out partying at a, at a prehistoric rave, you know, like just doing <laughs> it to get high for no purpose. In other words, they had, their motive was some sort of healing or ascension then. Absolutely. Pretty
0: much that was going on. But, But yeah. I'll tell you what happened is that, is that after the word got out about this going on down in Mexico, you had a flood of people from North America going down after the mushrooms. So I knew lots of people that were doing this in the um, late 60s. And at one point, it got so bad because what you did, you had people walking around in these villages Back in the mountains, stoned,
1: <laughs> and they were <laughs> the, tripping out. The locals must have been like, uh, "What is happening the here? What are all these high gringos were doing?"
0: Not happy. And the other yeah, thing that goes on yeah. in these types of situations is, all of a sudden, what was a sacred plant becomes a commodity that people are buying and selling. Right. Right. And that starts to change the dynamic in this uh, these small
1: communities. So, at what point did the Americans realize that you can just go out and find a cow pasture in Washington or Oregon or any number of places and find mushrooms there. You don't actually have to go to Mexico. (laughs) I mean, it's the same.
0: Well, well, this this is the interesting part about it is because then right in the early 70s, somebody in the States wrote a small little book called something like The American Psilocybin Mushroom. And he had watercolors of all these different psilocybe mushrooms that were growing all around the U.S., right. Gulf Coast, um, Washington, Oregon. So the next thing you know, yeah, people discovered that, hey, we don't have to go to Mexico. The other thing that happened, too, was that, was that down in Mexico, they literally sealed off this area in the mountains. They put, they put the army at all the roads and all the ways to get in there, they put the, And they went in, they rounded up everybody and deported them. And then for the next 10 years, nobody could get back in there unless you snuck back in. Wow. Yeah. It, wow. Was, it was
1: that crazy. And what was the motive of the Mexican government? Was it to preserve the culture or the land and not have it inundated with a bunch of high white people walking around? Or, or were they not wanting anyone to take these mushrooms like the US government eventually did.
0: They they were also, you know, I mean they're completely hooked up with the US government. So, okay. so it was like you know, it was like, oh the hippies have invaded and they're they're taking all of these crazy drugs. We've got to stop right. it. Right. And and plus it was pretty disruptive. So yeah. it was not very respectful of the local culture. And that sure. was the the big problem for a lot of including myself, I I thought it was pretty disrespectful. So when when I was up there later in the early 70s, everything had really kind of chilled out a little bit. But ultimately, realizing that they were actually in the Northwest, we could go out and find them. And, and at this point in time in 1973, I'm going to work on a mushroom farm.
1: Right. I'm learning how to grow mushrooms. So at what point did people, or did they ever, because I don't know if this ever really caught on, is you know making your own little lab and growing your own mushrooms. Magic mushrooms. Because I remember being a kid in the seventies and I got into drugs in the late seventies when yeah. I was still a kid. Yeah. For better or for worse. And uh I remember there was these I don't they weren't websites obviously because there was no internet, but yeah. you could get a hold of spores and yeah. make a little yeah. kit in your bedroom yeah. and grow yeah. your own yeah. mushrooms, but it never really caught on like growing marijuana, for example. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In yeah. Northern California in the seventies, I mean everyone grew weed. There's weed yeah, farms yeah, yeah, everywhere. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. part of the culture. But the growing your own mushrooms things never really seemed to catch. I never knew anyone that successfully did it, but I knew a lot of people that grew weed outdoors and indoors with lighting systems and things like that through the seventies and, and into the eighties. Did did growing your own mushrooms ever become easy and feasible And if someone wanted to scale and, you know, kind of produce a crop of magic mushrooms? Oh, man. Yeah. You did? Oh,
0: yeah. Absolutely.
1: Okay. So here, here's how it evolved. Because I used to sell mushrooms in the 90s. And oh, I, yeah. I think they, I don't know if they were grown in a lab or someone's home, you know, farm, or if they were collected from cow pies out in Oregon or something. I never could figure out where they came from. But oh, no. I used to get five ga- uh, five pound
0: bags of shrooms and sell yeah, yeah. them, you know? Oh, yeah. Of course. Of course. And and, and so so what, what's happening now is all through the 70s, People in the Northwest are out They're walking through pastures where you can find a lot of these really small little psilocybe mushrooms. Right. What do they, you call them? Psilocybe? Psilocybe is the actual psilocybe. genus. Okay. Yeah. So you, you could call them psilocybin mushrooms. Okay. But psilocybe is the genus. Psilocybe. The botanical name, psilocybe. And, there's a, and
1: how many different varieties of those well, are there? Well, there's
0: probably, I mean, worldwide, there's uh, hundreds of species. Okay. But in the United States... Maybe there's, uh, I don't know, 12, 15, 20 different species and and maybe half a dozen major species. Okay. Ones that you can go out and find and they're powerful and you can eat them. Mm -hmm. But but what went on is, is through the 70s, there were people combing the combing the pastures there were people so so you'd drive down the uh, roads in Washington or, or and Oregon and you'd look out and here'd be these people slowly walking through the pastures <laughs> with their eyes on the ground and, and and ultimately it got to the point where where police were called oftentimes like
1: by a farmer or somebody like, get these people out of my field. I can imagine these old timey, you know, (laughs) country folk farmers out there going, what the hell are these long haired naked hippies doing out in my field? All of a sudden that must've been a shot.
0: Well,
1: yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. I just watched this documentary called wild, wild country about Osho and his, his ashram in the woods up in Oregon, you know, and just seeing, you know, and this is like, uh, I guess late seventies, early eighties. and, to see how the local townspeople that are just very simple people, you know, that just kind of live off the land and they're farmers and all these hippies in orange robes come into town and they're just like, they feel like an alien invasion is happening, you know? Well, absolutely.
0: And it was an alien invasion in, in every sense of the word in terms of a new culture coming in and implanting itself right there in a place that had been the same for many years. So, I mean, that was the whole, that was the whole counterculture was an alien culture. Right. You know, I mean, this was something that was rejecting a lot of the mainstream values going off. And in and, and a lot of cases, we were exploring uh, areas of the mind that hadn't been looked at in our culture for maybe hundreds of years. Right. You know? So this was a
1: whole new thing. So, in terms of people then starting to experiment with magic mushrooms and LSD and, you know, the psychedelics and all that, like Ram Dass and Timothy yeah, Leary and yeah, all these yeah. guys, at what point did you observe? that culture then starting to take on cocaine and heroin and all the drugs that really don't have any inherent value other than destroying your life eventually. Was, was there like two sects of, of people at that point, like people that were more into marijuana, mushrooms, things like that, and then the other people that went into the hard street drugs? Or did a lot of, did a lot of people that had more of a, a holistic spiritual intention with psychedelic kind of end up getting caught in the wave of the harder drugs? Well,
0: you know what? There's, there was some of that, but uh, I would say generally it was two different. Paths, right? And and, you know, getting back to what was going on with mushrooms in the seventies, what happened is, you know, I spent the next ten years growing mushrooms. I mean, that that essentially is my profession as a mushroom grower, and I literally lived with mushrooms for 10 years. And the cool thing was on this farm and everything's grown indoors.
1: And these are legit like culinary and mushrooms. These are like culinary saying, mushrooms. Right. I
0: mean, these are, these are the mushrooms that you get in the supermarket. This is an agricultural model. Absolutely. Right? Okay. And, and we're making two every, every week on this farm, it's a big farm where we're bringing in four new crops every week. And four crops are, being taken out and, and dumped. So it's a 90 day, what we would call a cropping cycle. So, so I'm, I'm seeing literally four crops a week uh, times 50 weeks. That's 200 crops a year times 10 years. I've seen 2,000 individual mushroom crops in 10 years, 2,000. I think of a farmer, a farmer seeing what? 50 crops in a lifetime. Right, right and each one of these each one of these crops is producing approximately 20,000 pounds wow. of fresh mushrooms we're producing over over 2 million pounds of fresh button mushrooms and while i was there there was a japanese scientist who was working there and he was growing shiitake oyster mushroom and enoki mushroom so during the 70s i had a view of these other mushrooms being grown. So I was learning about how to grow these other mushrooms at the same time. And of course, you know, in the, in the late seventies, there was a lot of conferences going on about this whole history of like how, how this guy came across these magic mushrooms that were in the mountains. Uh, Harvard botanists that came in, uh, Albert Hofmann and LSD, these conferences were going on. well, with a group of three other people, we started mushroom conferences in uh, Washington and Oregon. So in 79, 80, 81, and 80, we had four major mushroom conferences where we brought in people. Andrew Weil was one of our speakers at a lot of these. And these conferences were Dealing with not just mushroom identification. So we're kind of like teaching people about identification. We're also teaching people about mushroom cultivation, which was which was my forte at the time. So that was my role in these conferences. The very last conference we had, our keynote speaker was Terrence McKenna. Oh wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, 19, 1982.
1: Wow. Yeah, he was our keynote at that one. So there's there's like uh there's kind of a crossover then with the you know, the the culinary mushrooms, the food mushrooms, and then some of those, you know, is the shiitake and some of these other uh, strains of mushrooms, varieties of mushrooms also are now beginning to have health benefits. And then that's crossing over with the mind and consciousness expanding. So the mushroom thing then at this point is, is kind of turning into a movement of sorts.
0: Yeah, it is. And, and, and to just kind of close this chapter a little bit, what happened was that in in 1976 1977, there's a couple of small little books that came out on how to grow psilocybe mushrooms. Okay, one of the yeah. books was written by uh, Terrence and Dennis McKenna. Oh, interesting. Okay, and then one of them is here. Aren't Dennis they? is here. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Oh man, Dennis I got to yeah, check yeah, him Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's going to be on tonight. And, and so, in 1983, I co-authored a book called The Mushroom Cultivator. And that had, it was a 400-page book. It had total instructions on how to grow mushrooms at home in a small setting. Well, and so what happened was all of a sudden people, rather than going out and hunting these things in the pastures and all of that, cultivation came in. And for the first time, These mushrooms were being grown on a large scale. People didn't have to go hunting them. And so, really, instead of, uh, you know, in a a lot of cases, when you were doing some kind of a psychoactive plant or something, you were just taking a little pill. You didn't know what was in it. Now you had actual mushrooms. You could look at them. You could see them. These are real mushrooms. So, So, literally, by the 80s, cultivated mushrooms were everywhere.
1: Interesting. And the number of people so now. So I wonder, then, in the early '90s, when I was buying them off my connect, I mean, they were I, all they were all being cultivated. Probably were. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And that was the big change. All of a sudden, people could do it at home and do it very, very successfully. I mean, right now, Luke, in the world today, there are millions and millions of pounds of psilocybin mushrooms being produced absolutely. Interesting. Millions of pounds.
1: Wow. (laughs) I think that's a good thing. You know, it's funny. I'm just, I'm thinking back to the, you know, the story of these, the indigenous people in Mexico, you know, growing the, or, you know, collecting these mushrooms, foraging these mushrooms, having ceremony around that. And then at some point, not only there, but just throughout the world, the governments as they've come into power, you know, as an I guess an end result of the agricultural system and land ownership and all that yeah, stuff, which is a whole other yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. That the powers that be, for various reasons, to me, I think they just collectively don't want the common people waking up and be and becoming <gasps> I totally conscious. agree. They totally made agree. plants illegal. I just yes, find that such yes. a weird thing. They made
0: plants illegal. So if
1: there was a psilocybin mushroom growing behind us here in a cow patty. If I pick it off the ground in the state of Texas, I'm assuming it's a felony here. They can throw me in jail for, for just possessing something that God or creation has put on Earth. I just find that to be so weird. Absolutely, if well, you, especially if you a plant. For yeah, God's that's sakes. what I'm saying. I mean, you know, something that's been processed from a plant. Sure, heroin, cocaine. Yes, I mean, yes, yes, yes. Heroin is much different than an opiate opium poppy, you know, as cocaine, the end product is much different than a cocoa leaf. I mean, I get that. Okay, sure. You're going to take plants and make a potentially deadly compound of it. Yeah, maybe some intervention there, but still not. (laughs) Still not, yeah. Yeah. But a plant, you know, or I guess a (laughs) fungi is not technically a plant. It's its own species. But I just find that to be so wrong on so many levels, you know. So even though I don't personally participate in... You know, I mean, I sometimes will microdose on psilocybin yeah, or yeah, something, which yeah, we can get into, yeah. but I I don't like take any kind of drug to get high plant or otherwise yeah, at this point yeah, in my yeah. life. It's just not part of the journey, but yep. I'm still such an advocate for freedom of people to use whatever nature provides at their own risk. I you know? am too. I am too. hundred percent. It's such a, ah, it, just, it just irks me. Well, that, and, and listen,
0: here's one of the things about when you can all of a sudden give people the power to actually cultivate these things themselves it's just like it's just like people that used to have to go to Mexico to smoke pot or something right, right? and now they can grow it back here, let's say in their garden whatever have a few plants they've got full control of that they don't have to be out there am I gonna get busted by buying it from some person or, or whatever yeah. so so really the fact that for the first time, People could actually grow these mushrooms, small amounts, at home. The fact, you know, however they do it, yeah. was, was a really good thing. Not only did they yeah. no longer go to Mexico, and the funny thing is, is these villages in Mexico that at one point in time were flooded with people looking for these mushrooms. I went back in 2002 to one to the this one village that was the place. There were three Mexican hippies in town and one American filmmaker. (laughs) That was it. Wow! There was nobody there. And not only that, they had a mushroom festival every summer during the rainy season. And the woman who was the curandera that became very famous from that area, her name was Maria Sabina. She was now a patron saint Wow! Yeah, cool. And 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 they looked at her in a totally different way from someone you know. Some other culture might look at her. She was a curandera. She used these things to heal people. She was literally sated down there. And now they're having mushroom festivals. And yet, even with the mushroom festival there. Nobody in North America probably even knows about them, right. and nobody even thinks about it because it's like, oh, yeah, if I want mushrooms, I just go down here and I buy them from so-and-so, and sure. everything's cool. Or I grow them at home, yeah. and that was certainly one of the things that that my book uh, that was written, again, that I co-authored in 1983, helps people do. That's cool. You know, as well as yeah. well as growing edible mushrooms as well, because there's edible mushrooms, but you could right. also use the same techniques to grow uh, psilocybe mushrooms.
1: So with the psilocybe. 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 B. B. Oh, like psilocybin. Yeah, psilocybe. Okay. Psilocybe, a hard word to say. <laughs> mushrooms. At what point in your own personal life, you know, has the, I don't want to say recreational use, but say s- sacramental... Um, use of those mushrooms in your life? Is that something you did in the past and don't do anymore? Do you periodically take trips for your own purposes still at this point?
0: Well, I I, I still do, but in a, in a, a more limited way. Okay. You know what? I've had a lot of doors opened and I've seen a lot of things that, that I cherish those experiences because they've shown me, let's just say they've shown me areas, spaces, dimensions that, that, allowed me to realize that there's a lot more than what we're seeing right here. That that part of our education is to close us down to where our senses and our mind and everything is closed down to what our culture wants us to focus on. So, so visually or auditorily. Which is, which is or,
1: becoming a tax... Pain.
0: <laughs> I mean, this <laughs> producer. Is, this is this is all stuff that you know they don't want us to experience this other thing because because really, those experiences in the very beginning, back in prehistory, that was immediate experience with the Godhead. That was experiencing the world, or let's say this universe as it really is. The churches once they organized and they got away from that, they didn't want us to have that experience anymore. They absolutely didn't. They, they closed it right down, just yeah. like they closed it down back in the 60s when it was reemerging. Um, so, so really, uh, uh, those experiences for me were, were seminal in how I view the world. There's something that opened my eyes, like they opened the eyes of a lot of people, and it was very, very important. And, and uh, I think I think people should all you know, especially people who are ready should have it. But of course you always need to do it in the right place with yeah. the right mind space. And that's called set and setting. And, set that, and setting, that's yeah. very, very important. I wish
1: I had known that when I was 16. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, well, yeah. I had the 60s, a lot of
1: psychedelic experiences. Yeah, that were not Well, Luke, not I mean, optimal. the
0: sixties was full of that, oh, you know, because, because we were not given a framework on how to utilize these things. Yeah. And that's why a lot of people wanted to go off to Mexico and these places. That's why a lot of people now go to South America to be in some session with an ayahuascaro or something. And a lot of those are not valid. Some, some are. You have to be very careful. But to me, it's like, look, either do it alone in your own personal space or do it with friends in a safe space
1: have somebody there that's gonna yeah. answer the phone and answer the door sure because <laughs> sure. you don't yeah. want to do that some of my <laughs> first experiences would have been like at a Motley Crue concert <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean? like, yeah well exactly <laughs> the, the, you know I think I remember one of the hardest acid trips I ever had was it, it, it could have been cool but it's just Acid just lasts too long, but I went to the Pink Floyd Laser Show in Golden Gate Park. Oh, yeah. This was, uh you know, uh, mid-80s or something, probably 86, maybe something yeah, like that. Yeah, you yeah. had a great idea. Cool, let's lo- go listen to Dark Side of the Moon to this laser uh, light show. yeah, I yeah. I mean, God, what a great thing to do yeah. on acid, right? Well, the thing is, the light show, we didn't realize, it's about 45 minutes long, <laughs> you know? So, take the acid, start to come on. It's amazing. And then they turn the lights on. They're like, bye, <laughs> folks. And, and you're now like, like yeah, uh, and now we have to drive through San Francisco, which uh, is a difficult town to drive around of course a car it sober. Is, yes. All the, you know, one way streets and all those hills yeah. and stuff. So now I'm like frying balls trying to navigate my way out of San Francisco <laughs> while the street signs are melting before my <laughs> yeah. eyes. It was a horrifying experience, yes, you know? Absolutely. It's one of those things. And then you're like, 10 hours later, you're still tripping. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, yeah. set oh, yeah. setting are really important. Uh, Even though my intention was not, oh, I'm going to take acid and meditate and find God. Right, or something. right, I mean, right, it was like, right, hey, I yeah. just want to see some yeah, weird well, shit. Well, yeah, and
0: you know what? I'm not opposed to that either because in, in the right setting too, I think, I think, you know, as a celebration, it can also be used in a celebration in the right setting. So I, I'm not sure. one of those, you know, you've got to be in a church to do this, right? Yeah. No, I'm not I'm not that way at all because I think there's a place for both. But there are definitely times where you don't want to be doing it and situations where you don't want to be high on, on one of those plants. And, yeah. and they can teach you a lot. You can learn a lot from them. You absolutely can. But, but you know, going back to, to sort of where I... Ended up was that all through the 80s, I read more about medicinal mushrooms, right? And, and I'd known about medicinal right. mushrooms in the 70s as I was a mushroom grower. It's and all. You,
1: I can tell you've, you, you've played with some plants because you intuitively know where I want to go next. <laughs> 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 you're tuned in because I was like, I, I want to, I do want to cover the psychoactive <laughs> element, but we have some medicinal mushrooms in front of us. You, you're now a purveyor, uh, I'm that's a huge part of my life, yeah. But you know, actually. Before we go into that I do want to touch on on one more thing uh, so that I don't forget and that is this concept of microdosing with okay, the psychoactive yeah, yeah, mushrooms yeah, as yeah. I said it's something I've experimented with very cautiously lately yeah, because yeah, I'm not in yeah. a place in my life where I want to trip you know just Sure sure there, I understand that, yeah I, I feel yeah. I've kind of I've seen through those windows in the house yep. and I'm cool I, yep. I live in that house as much as I can totally sober yep. uh but I have done a fair amount of research about this idea of microdosing with psychoactive mushrooms, which to me would mean taking around a 10th of a gram, which yeah. is like nowhere near enough to get any adult human, what you'd consider high. Correct. And so I've done a little bit of that and haven't really noticed anything other than, cause I, you know, I've only done it a few times. I haven't done an extended trial sure, where sure, I'm doing it for three months sure, or something like yeah. that. But what I have noticed is my vision improves on those days. Oh, interesting. Because I'm a little bit, uh, what do they call it? Nearsighted, yeah, I think. Yeah, you yeah, know, So yeah. far away gets a little blurry. Uh-huh. And I had an experience recently where I, I started feeling a little bit strange. Not high, but just like a little uncomfortable. So I went outside and I was like, oh God, I hope I'm not tripping. Took a moment, closed my eyes. I was like, I'm not tripping, but I definitely started to tickle the consciousness okay. ever so slightly. Oh, yeah. So I was like, I don't like this feeling. And I kind of breathed through it. And then I opened my eyes and I was in my car, just took a breather and I opened my eyes and I was like, holy shit, I can see that street sign across oh, the man. street, which there's no way I would yeah. be able to read that sign normally. You know, what, you know, it's
0: so awesome. Yeah. And, and you know, you know where that fits in too, is that yeah. fits into Terrence McKenna's whole, um, one of the things that he was uh, conjecturing, which was early on in our development back in time. The stoned ape is sort of his thing where we, we started to ingest these things. And what did it do? It gave us some visual acuity, allowed us to hear a little more. These are survival skills. These right. are things that help us survive. So he, he was postulating not only that, that, that also that drove our mental capabilities in a certain way too and helped to, to bring that on. But, you know, you can imagine if you're a hunter, visual acuity. If you're a hunter, your hearing is a little bit more in tune. Oh man. Yeah. These are going to help you out a lot. So so yeah and, and microdosing, you know what? I I think microdosing is is kind of cool. Uh, 100 milligrams is a very small amount. You're you're definitely That's a totally good. Yeah, right? 10 of that's gram. You're barely going to scratch the surface with that. Or-
1: which for people listening, uh, if you were to, to grind that up in a coffee maker, which I would recommend is to standardize it so you're getting caps and stems in yep, equal yep, measure yep, so yep. that you, know, you can actually measure the dose, that would be one regular vitamin-sized capsule about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't put mine in a capsule, and I think the one day that I felt a little funky— not high, but just, yeah. I'm so sober yeah, yeah, for yeah, so yeah, long no, no. that any little micro weird feeling, I'm like, I notice it. So yeah. I noticed a little feeling, but yeah. that day I didn't grind it up and I didn't standardize it. Okay. So I might've just eaten a tiny little stem that was still a 10th of a gram, but it might've been stronger than the other little cap or the other little stem.
0: You know, Or you never know. It might, you know what, sometimes what it is, is that your body on that day is in a different place. Oh,
1: interesting. You know, I didn't think it's about like
0: that. the food or anything, you're in a different, your body's different that day than the other days. And you are just a little bit more sensitive. You do, and you should start at a, a small level, 100 milligrams, like you're talking about, a tenth of a, a gram. See if that has any effect on you. If it doesn't, then to really get the benefits do it in a regular way over a period of time. And and what I was saying too is that that with these types of plants and with these types of uh, compounds, you can build up a tolerance to them. So if you're taking higher doses of these things, normally if you take that like a couple times a week by the third or fourth time, you're not really getting very high on them. So you can build up a tolerance, which is, is interesting when it comes to the microdosing thing. And I don't know whether... If you were to microdose at a certain level, you'd reach a point where, okay, I've got this great point. Or whether you'd just go, you know what? All of a sudden, I'm not getting any benefits. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's the other possibility that's here. That, that's something that I'd love to talk to uh,
1: Dennis McKenna about because he would probably be able to address that. Yeah, because- You really do build up a tolerance, though, because back in the day when I was you know, selling mushrooms as an illicit drug, uh, <laughs> I would take... I yeah, mean, when I start out, you'd take a couple grams and get pretty high. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. over the years of periodically taking them and having access to pounds of yeah, them, I'd yeah. take like a quarter ounce. And yeah. i get high, Yeah, you know, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. But it's like I kind of had to do more and more over the yeah, years yeah, to yeah, achieve yeah. That, that same. That could be in the same place. And you know? it's like a
0: lot of herbs. I mean, with, a lot of herbals will tell you if you're taking a certain herb, stop it after a certain period of time and then give your body uh, a chance to rest and and, uh, sort of recalibrate. To
1: kind of cycle the herbs. Yeah, 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 Yeah. absolutely. So so let's, um, oh, one last thing actually on the microdosing is I've heard some stuff, I think it was Paul Stamets that I heard on Joe Rogan's show Mm -hmm. and he talked all about all things mushrooms, of course, but one of the things he highlighted with the microdosing is the synergistic relationship with lion's mane, particularly, and cubensis, you know uh, psychoactive mushrooms have you heard anything about enhancing you know the the different types the properties of the different types of mushrooms like that? Well, you know what, in terms
0: of a synergy between different mushrooms, there's very little science on that at this point in time. Every everything I would say on on that subject is going to be anecdotal. Okay. So so if somebody has that experience and, and then great, report it and tell it and, and we can discuss it and other people can can try it and find out but uh, but that's purely anecdotal at this point in time. I don't sure. think there's anything that really would support that in a scientific okay. way. And oh. you know, some people are speculating a lot. out there, and that that's great. You know, yeah. people can speculate on yeah. all sorts of things. I mean, the fact
1: of the matter is it's not going to hurt you no. to try it. No, you know, it's absolutely like, not. There, it's <laughs> like there's poisonous mushrooms, then there's mushrooms that aren't, or, you know, right. poisonous that could kill you or hurt you. Yeah. And there's the non-poisonous medicinal and edible mushrooms and cool, mix and match them as you please. And there doesn't seem that's to right. be any... That's That's absolutely right. I mean, you right? can, like with medicinal mushrooms, you can blend a
0: number. In fact, one of the products we sell has five different mushrooms together. What I would say is that there are some products out there that have, and we can get into this a little bit later, have yeah. like 16 and 20 and 24. And it's like, you know, the products out there that are like kitchen sink products. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, the more of them we put in here, the better. Actually, it's the opposite because what happens is that you end up putting in mushrooms with much lower value and you're you're at the same time lowering the amount of the really good ones. Right, so you right. end up with a product that's actually
1: not as good. That's funny. I, I, I find that a lot with just a lot of the green powders and just the different superfoods and there'll be like 150 ingredients, but that's serving dose is a tablespoon. I'm thinking... How much spirulina is actually in the, you know, in a tablespoon? If there's 150 other things competing with that, you know, milligram. So anyway. you have to
0: be very careful with those products. Absolutely. So at what
1: point then? Let's jump back to, uh, which is, a, you know, a great segue into when you started to discover the Chinese herbalism aspect of medicinal mushrooms, and let's go into a few of those and what some of the health benefits are and things like that. in,
0: in uh, 1989, I made my first trip to China. And I went over for an international conference on mushrooms. So the international mushroom conference by the International Society for Mushroom Science in China. And this was like during a period when China is just opening up, and this was the very first international conference in China. So I'm going over to that wow, in 1989. God, that must have been a trip. Oh man, it was! A, I never in my wildest dreams thought I would have anything to do with China in my life. Right. And it turns out I'm totally connected now. <laughs> so that was the first time I met so many people at that conference. And all through the nineties, I traveled through China because what I, what I realized, and this is something that's really important is that as a mushroom grower, I can grow mushrooms in North America and sell them as food. And I can sell you that fresh shiitake for $5 a pound. As a supplement, now, I'm selling a dried powder, so I have to dry that shiitake out. Well, a shiitake mushroom and all mushrooms are 90% water. Now, that $5, I have to get $50 for that same pound. I sell stuff in kilos. Now, that (laughs) would be like over $100 for a kilo of shiitake mushrooms as a dried powder, Economically, it does not work for a nutritional supplement. Sure. Okay. I realized that in the 90s and I went, okay, China is the place. And, you know, China, man, I tell you, Luke, it has got thousands of years of history there. It is an unbelievable place. And it is where mushroom growing began. In the 12th century, they learned how wow. to grow shiitake mushrooms. Wow! The 12th century. In fact, in fact, you know what's That's really crazy. cool is that at this uh, mushroom conference, we're in a back in the mountains of China, and we're in the shiitake growing mecca, the heartland of shiitake growing in China, and nearby is a Buddhist temple. And it's dedicated to the man who first introduced shiitake growing to the other people in China. So you go into this temple, and they've got this dude sitting up in the front, a big statue of this guy. And in one open hand that he's got outstretched in his palm, he's got a shiitake mushroom. It's like the shiitake temple. There. That's crazy, dude. And, and it was just like and, and, and it was and it was just kind of like it wasn't a big temple. It it was at this point in time, it's still kind of a funky little temple, but they took us there, and that's where the local people would go to kind of pay homage to this guy, and also to do uh, kind of a Buddhist good luck thing there as well. Seeing that there and realizing that these people here know how to grow mushrooms, they are organized, and and it is hundreds, thousands of small growers that are doing this. And the other cool thing is that they're growing mushrooms naturally with not inside in rooms like when I used to grow them in huge cement rooms with air conditioning and heating and fresh air being pumped in and humidity control. They're growing them during the time of year when the temperatures are perfect for that mushroom, they're growing them in shade houses. And and they're growing millions of pounds, of course, but shade houses, natural temperature, fresh air, natural light, mushrooms need light. You've heard the joke of, oh yeah, they keep me in the dark like a mushroom and they feed me bullshit and stuff Uh, like that, right? Mushrooms actually need light to grow. The button mushroom that I used to grow indoors does not need light, but all, almost all other mushrooms need light to grow and mature properly. Otherwise, they'll grow in a kind of a weird way. But while I'm there in the 90s, I am going to Scientific Research Institute's I'm visiting processors. I'm visiting farms. I'm going to conference after conference. I'm making connections. I'm learnings. I'm going to conferences where there are traditional Chinese medicine doctors there, and they're talking about their use of mushrooms. Still remember the one guy who was saying, reishi is my most powerful herb for the liver. Wow, and that's always stayed with me. And and that's what some that's of the science that has makes proved sense because it's bitter. Yes, and exactly. It's bitter herbs those are with the, the bitter
1: triterpenes
0: in there, and science has demonstrated that. So, I build up a lot of connections, and and in ni- and, and my business, I started my business in 1989, the same year that I went over to China, 1989, and I used to go to the Natural Foods Expo in Anaheim, which they have every year, and it's a big natural product show. In 1990, 91, I was walking the floor of that with a reishi mushroom in my hand. No way, (laughs) right? And I was going, have you ever heard of medicinal mushrooms? People look at me like, what are you talking about? And, And they
1: look at this reishi I had, and they look and they go, is that just a piece of wood? Which, by the way, we've got you, you guys listening to the podcast. This will be not meaningful to you, but I'm going to go ahead and show this on our Instagram and Facebook Live. That is a reishi mushroom right there. It's really fantastic. And it's interesting when you touch them. I am I have it in my hand, obviously. And yeah, yeah, yeah. they are really hard like wood. You They're know? So hard it's not, and woody. It's not like a mushroom that you could just eat. I mean, it needs to be go through an extraction process, which we'll talk about. But this is one of the strangest things. It looks like it's not made by nature. And just when you touch a reishi mushroom, it is such a trippy thing it is amazing it's like a wooden plant almost it's just the weirdest thing yeah and this is
0: this of course is a dried reishi mushroom right okay and 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 classically too the reishi mushroom will form like a ram's horn spiral design which is that classic kind of sacred geometry. Right, right. And, and and this one, they've allowed it to grow all the way together. So it's grown right. together, but it produces that like uh, Archimedes uh, circle and it's just, it's just the most beautiful. And you see it, you see it all over in China in their art. You see it in their architecture. It is just this common motif. In fact, they've got another mushroom that's very similar to reishi that is as they call it turkey tail and they call that the cloud fungus because it kind of looks like a cloud in the way it grows but so 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 what what i you know here it is i'm trying to introduce mushrooms into the the nutritional supplement yeah, industry yeah. and people are like man you know they they're green plant people right that's what they know this is herbalism this is western herbalism green plants fungi no 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 they don't know anything about it and there i am trying to sell to people at a trade show who are there to sell. (laughs) So it's a hard sell. During the nineties, I produced all sorts of articles. I, uh, published books trying to educate people about it. And then in 1997, I went to China with OCIA, which is one of the top organic certifiers in the United States. And we did the very first organic certification workshop for mushrooms in China, wow. 1997. And there was there was 24 people
1: there. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. Today's show is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. Now, you guys know I'm always talking about their medicinal mushroom elixirs because I take them all the time. I'm super addicted to them. But now they've got a couple other products that I'm really into. They've got a decaf coffee for when I don't feel like freaking out on caffeine. And then they have a regular coffee, but not just coffee. Both of them are infused with medicinal mushrooms. So it's a mushroom coffee. They're fantastic. They've also got some matcha drinks like the matcha with lion's mane. And the thing that's cool about the Four Sigmatic drinks is they're Totally organic. They're super powerful herbs and superfoods and mushrooms, but they're really easy to use. That's the issue I've had, like trying to be healthy and making myself some cool drinks, is that it's kind of a pain in the ass and I have to open up all these different containers and it's a big project. Their products come in these little packets. You just pop them open, they're very portable. I take them on the plane, I take them on trips, I keep them in my bag, in my car, I kind of have them all over the house. And I can just use them whenever I want. So Four Sigmatic, one of my favorite companies. If you want to check them out, I highly recommend that you do. To do that, you go to foursigmatic.com. And like all of my sponsors, they offer a sweet discount to the listeners. If you use the code LukeStory, you will save 15% off your order, which is a pretty good deal. So go to foursigmatic.com, enter the code LukeStory and save 15%. Check it out. And now, back to the interview. So what could go wrong for a mushroom grower that has a commercial operation that's not using pesticides? Would, would you have issues with bugs or what, what would come in and interfere with your crop?
0: Well, yeah, absolutely. There are going to be bugs out there. If you, if you go out wild mushrooming and you find one of these choice edible mushrooms out there, there's a good chance that it could be bug riddled. And these would be like the larvae of these little flies and things. They, they, the, the flies will come in, they'll lay their eggs, the larva will hatch, and then they will just literally worm their way through and chew this thing up. So yeah, like any monocrop, growing mushrooms is also susceptible to that. And it's also susceptible to, to other fungi that can attack Oh, the mushroom crop that can attack the the mycelium that is that is like your, in your substrate that's in that piece of wood or in that compost. They will attack that and chew
1: on it as so well. So there's competition amongst the fungi. Yes,
0: absolutely. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah, no, no. You, it's not like everybody's down underground holding hands.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so there's
0: a war going on in the well, soil. Well, you know what? And I don't like to talk about it in those terms because okay. the way I look at it, and the way I look at the world is, is we're all in this together. We're actually cooperating, but we're, we're consuming the same things sometimes. Okay, well, you're taking what you can. I'm taking what I can, and we're kind of competing in a certain way. But no, we're not really at war because this is a very large ecosystem with lots of organisms here. So I look at it, you know, maybe in the, in the worst case, maybe we're struggling against something because we can be struggling against microbial infections or something like that. But you know, the minute you start talking about war, all of a sudden it's like, you're starting to tighten up. You're starting to get into a place where, where you're not a good healing space. Right. So, so for me, that metaphor, I don't like like at all. I like that. I really don't. So, so, the, the key, the key thing though, Luke, is that, is that after that workshop within three years, I was getting certified organic mushrooms from my Chinese partners. And those mushrooms we were then also Making into extracts and and I I've been certified organic since 1992 in my business
1: because wow. I totally, no one even knew what organic was I
0: point. totally so believe in the organic ethic right I mean it's it's a major thing for me and that's what I want to be I don't want to be selling products that are full of chemicals yeah absolutely not so what,
1: when you have a commercial operation for medicinal mushrooms how how do you avoid like what do you do to protect your crop if you're not using chemicals and Pesticides and all that kind of stuff, fungicides. Well, you and know that. what?
0: A lot of it is just is just making sure there's no other items around that can possibly be hiding places for these things to propagate. Um, you can do it just by the, the initial stages. The key is in those initial stages when you're... Because mycelium is what we use as our seed. So that grows out in like the sawdust or the wood log. If we can keep that protected... So nothing gets in in that initial stage of the cultivation cycle. By the time we put that out to get the mushroom started, the amount of time now is going to be much shorter. So there's a lot less time for these other things to get in. So a lot of it is your technique, how you're doing it, how clean your operation is. You don't have a lot of old, old spent bags laying around that are filled with bugs and stuff like that. So, so there are ways to do it. I mean, no different than what people have to do here in the United States for any organic crop. It really is, you know, you, it's just a different technique, but it can be done. And, and we've gotten, I mean, our products, I'm just so proud of all of our, and we use hundreds of small growers, that, that are organized by the people that we work with over there. And that then the, that organic mushroom comes to our processing facility. And these processing facilities, man, it's just like stainless steel everywhere. You know, it's like we're extracting. So there's huge stainless steel vessels that the mushrooms get put into and they get cooked two, sometimes three times Certain mushrooms like reishi or chaga will get cooked once with alcohol. Then, it get, then that, that fluid gets concentrated down, all gets put together, gets sent off to a spray dryer, and at the end of the process, you have this really beautiful, fine powder. Yeah. You know, and, 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 yeah. and, and that the thing about it, too, with these mushroom powders is every mushroom species is unique. Everyone's got its own flavor everyone's, everyone has its same, it's di- a different color. Uh, everyone has a unique benefit, although they all share certain compounds that are beneficial and those would be the beta glucans.
1: Right. So back to the, cause I, I want <laughs> I do want to touch on, you know, maybe the top five medicinal mushrooms in the Chinese herbal uh, system. Yeah. What about, a country like China that's very polluted and has, you know, what from what I understand, somewhat lax, you know, pollution yeah, yeah, laws and yeah, things yeah. like that in terms of heavy metals and yeast and things like that getting into the mushrooms, you know, there's a lot of fears that people have in the herbal scene. Oh, it comes from China. People yeah. really get oh, paranoid. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. You know, mercury dust has come down yeah. from the, the coal mining yeah. or you know, whatever. How do you how do you how does one ensure that you, there's not any contaminants getting in there prior to even the processing uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, stage.
0: You know what? People's concerns are definitely well founded. I mean, you know, any industrial area Be it in China or somewhere else, if it's spewing out all of that into the air and that's going to settle somewhere or into the water, that's a problem. So, so for one, most of our mushrooms are grown deep in China, back in the mountains, in areas that are really far, not not near big cities. They're far away. (laughs) No, no, Or, or Shanghai or these places. No, no, not at all. And 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 look. We can't sell our products unless they have been tested for heavy metals, for pesticides, and there are standards for that. So, So before any of our products leave China, they get tested for pesticides, they get tested for heavy metals, and they get tested for microbial contamination. This is standard procedure in the supplement industry. Once they get over here, we bring them right into our warehouse in California. We sample them. We test them again. And the labs testing them in China are not like in-house labs by the company that's producing them. These are our are international labs that are, are very qualified, have the best machinery. They're doing a very good job. But we test them again. We will resample it. We will send it out for the whole battery of tests again. Pesticides, heavy metals, microorganisms. So essentially, all of our products... Every single batch that we make is tested twice. And I cannot sell my products unless it meets these specifications, unless it passes these tests. No company will buy it from me. That's the way the industry is right now. A lot of people think, oh, yeah, the industry, it's unregulated and this and that. In some ways, it is. But, man, when it comes to these types of standards, heavy metals and pesticides and things, it's pretty strict. And people who are out there, businesses, they're very careful. I mean, especially here in California, Prop yeah. 65. People yeah.
1: have to be very careful about what they're doing. So, so, and not only and, that. And what about, Jeff, what about the irradiation issue? Because I've heard, this is going back when I first got into herbs in the mid-90s. Uh, you know, certain purveyors would say, hey, you got to look out when you're bringing something from out of the country. It might even be grown organically there, tested for this, tested for that, but then it gets irradiated. In other words, like run through, you know, yep, a sterilization yep, yep, process yep, on its yep. way in, but can still be called organic. And there's weird stuff like that. Do you know anything about the irradiation practice well, of certain herbs? Yeah,
0: certainly for one. And, and what I would say is, is, generally speaking... Nothing is going to get irradiated as it comes into the country. What will happen is sometimes they might put a container uh, under some kind of x-ray, let's say, just to kind of check things. But irradiation, no. And and our products are not irradiated and can't be irradiated. I mean, absolutely not. And there are tests now. There are tests that you can do to make sure it's not irradiated. Oh, that's cool. The, The industry now, you know, it's funny, Luke, because... Five years ago, I had a couple of customers, big companies, who were like, we want every single product you sell us to be irradiated. Oh, God. And you know why? And, and, and this is the whole thing, like like spices. Spices are irradiated. They're just irradiated. That's it, because there's a lot of microorganisms that you can't get out. I, I mean, food, it's got microorganisms there. It's not, like, clean. And, and not only that... We don't want to be eating food that is like, there's not a single microbe on that. We need those microbes. That's what keeps us healthy because that's what keeps our immunity going and strong. We just don't want so many of them that they create illness. Right. So that's really the key, sure. but but no, we a um, radiation. <laughs> like I was saying, they used to be like, oh no, we need that now. irradiation in the in the supplement industry is like verboten. Okay, you cool. do not cool. irradiate. If it's yeah. irradiated, we're sending it back. We wow. will not. Okay, so things have pro- Oh. Have they ever, yeah. you know, the, the things, those things have evolved, but as we'll find out as we go along, other things haven't evolved and that's right. really the, the shame in it all. And we'll, we'll sort of get it So there. let's
1: get, let's get into now the different types of mushrooms then, uh, you know, some of the big players, like we've got our, our reishi mushroom here. And then again, I'm sorry, people listening won't be able to see this, but we've got this bag of cordyceps, which is just a beautiful specimen. Those people that are watching on Instagram and Facebook live can see this. We've got a bag of this. And I'm like, I just want to eat the whole damn thing. <laughs> so run us through like, you know, the top four or five sure. mushrooms that you like to work with. And, and, and in a brief way, if you can, some of the health benefits sure. attributed to some of those, those particular sure. strains.
0: Well, first, let me just say that the mushrooms are a fantastic food. And, and what I tell people before you even think about supplementing, put mushrooms in your diet. Start eating mushrooms, shiitake mushrooms, fabulous. Eat shiitake mushrooms regularly. I, I eat shiitake mushrooms a couple times a week. I eat mushrooms three or four times a week. They are part of my diet. I love mushrooms. Now you just showed this amazing cordyceps. Cordyceps traditionally has been used for people who are, have just come out of an illness. They're, they've got this weakness. They're fatigued. Cordyceps, that's what they would prescribe for these people. Uh, they have something called neurasthenia, and that is weakness after an illness. Now, now, what a lot of people use cordyceps for is, okay, they just go fa- fatigue. They say, well, wow, as an athlete, maybe that can help me overcome my fatigue a little bit. And it has shown, science has shown, that it does help with oxygen utilization. So, so cordyceps now is used a lot in athletic products and things like that. But, but I would say too, is if you're feeling a general weakness and malaise or something like that, cordyceps is definitely something that you might want to look and at. And are
1: cordyceps the ones that are grown on a caterpillar or something like that? Does yeah, that they have yeah, something yeah. to do with the bug? Well, well, here's the, here's and the, the thing. Can, and they, can they be grown without that or is well, that part of the th- process? Well,
0: see the, the, uh, The cordyceps that's the most famous is called the caterpillar fungus, and that's the name of it in Chinese. And the Chinese name actually means winter worm, summer grass. And what happens is that that caterpillar hibernates in the winter, but what it doesn't realize is that it's got spores of cordyceps on it so while it's hibernating up in the up in tibet the foothills to tibet and it's hanging out under the ground in the winter hibernating think oh yeah this is cool i'm just gonna go to sleep for a while those spores germinate the mycelium gets inside that caterpillar and consumes the whole thing Consumes it, lock, stock, and barrel. So, so then now, so it's it's no longer alive. And then when conditions change, and now it's summer, it puts up this little small um, grass-like mushroom, which is is similar to this here, this Cordyceps militaris, and. That's what people have harvested for centuries. And you literally have to do it on your hands and knees. And and not just pick that mushroom. No, they dig back the turf and they pull that caterpillar out. And then they dry the caterpillar with this cordyceps on it. And that's why it's called the uh, caterpillar fungus and winter worm summer grass. And, and the reason why this is so famous actually is because in China, they consider it to be a uh, aphrodisiac and something that oh, helps with potency. The worm, okay. I get it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can see how there would be a folklore association there. <laughs> well, exactly. There. That's kind of like sympathetic
1: magic. You know, like produces right. like kind of thing, right. you know, right. like, like a rhino horn or something. <laughs> so with the with the cordyceps now, are you able to produce it without the worm involved and still get the, the the medicinal benefits? Well, here's here's what's happened is that
0: is that in the last 10 years, in 1999, I was in Hong Kong and I was looking at cordyceps going, okay, yeah, this is cool. I, I should probably get work in my product line. $1,000 a kilogram. I'm thinking, wow, $1,000 a kilogram. I, I buy some samples. I take it back and people are like, well, yeah, it's all very interesting, but you know what? Um, our our customers are vegetarians. They don't want to eat caterpillars. That's meat. <laughs> oh, interesting. I never <laughs> and, thought of and, that. And right. I'm like, yeah, caterpillars, you know, that that's going to be a hard sell. <laughs> and In the interim period, what has happened is that in the last 10 years, the price of cordyceps, all of a sudden the demand has sort of gone up, especially in Asia. And it went up to the point where it was now, instead of a thousand a kilo, $20,000 a kilogram. Oh my God. Wholesale. Wow. Yeah. And, and, And sometimes it's like $10 US a gram. It's just like nuts. So, so. What happens, now? and and here's the really cool thing. This is a different species that was called Cordyceps sinensis. This one is Cordyceps militaris. This also grows on a bug in the wild, but in the last 10 years in China, scientists have learned how to cultivate it, and they cultivate it actually on a... A rice type of material. And now we can, and, and listen, Luke, there's only maybe 20, 25 mushrooms that we can cultivate in the world. That's it. And there's thousands of species. We can only cultivate about 25. So when a new species comes into cultivation, it is like, wow, it is a wow factor. And for me, not only that, it's cordyceps. For the first time, we can have the cordyceps, the mushroom itself, we can be actually using that and providing that to my customers. And you know what? At a price that is really reasonable. Like, for example, Real Mushrooms, which is the retail side of the business, sells 60 grams. So so a tenth of a kilo almost or a fifteenth of a kilo sells that for $30. Wow. Yeah. And, wow. and and the science has shown and, and this cordyceps militaris has been used interchangeably with cordyceps sinensis historically. So it's got all the same properties and more. So it is it's just a fantastic Development and I'm just that's so awesome. happy, and the fact that I can afford people, yeah, I know, I know, and it's like okay, and you know, it's funny is that now the price of the wild one is starting to go down. <laughs> I bet, and that's a good thing. Sure, it's a good thing. Can you imagine sure. what it would do to a culture if uh, yeah. some wildcrafted product out there all of a sudden was worth twenty thousand a kilogram? Can you imagine what that would do to the culture? Yeah. There literally have been been incidents where. A group comes into an area that is a different village. They start to harvest the cordyceps. The locals go, "You're on my in my hood. You can't do this." They've killed them. Wow. There was an incident where they killed six people. Damn. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. yeah. It's, like, it's like you're in my hunting ground. You can't do that. You got to yeah. leave. You got to get out of here. Well, thank God for <laughs> laboratories. <laughs> so, so you know what? And 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 so so this has grown. Um, naturally, the other, the reishi, that's grown on a wood log with mushrooms having, like, for example, most medicinal mushrooms, interestingly enough, except the cordyceps, grow on wood. Wood has a lot of the precursors that we need to make those medicinal compounds. Right. So if you're not growing your mushroom on wood, you're not going to get the precursors. Reishi, you're not going to get the triterpenoids, which are the bitter element of reishi. Reishi is. The premier adaptogen, that is what everybody in China knows. They knows the reishi mushroom. And that's what people take, especially as they, they get older, their immune system gets a little bit tired. They start to take reishi, and they just consume that th- for the rest of their lives. And that's one of the their main tonic herbs. That's something that's going to work on all levels for you. So reishi is, if, if you're going to take one particular mushroom and supplement it with it, Reishi. Man, that's, yeah. that's the one. That's what I put into my coffee every morning. I
1: remember. I, I do too. Yeah, I remember going in the early 90s to Chinatown and getting these reishi mushrooms that were sliced up, kind of a cross section. And they look sort of like a pale bacon almost, yeah, yeah, like a strip yeah, of bacon. Yeah, yeah. And I would boil those. I was like, God, these things taste like shit. <laughs> And then I realized, oh, if you mix it with coffee or a drink that already has a tone of flavor that's inherently bitter in and yeah, of itself, it's, yeah, just, yeah. it's got that synergistic relationship. Absolutely. You can make it taste good. Absolutely. It tastes so, very
0: similar. So you can put it in there and it just kind of melds in with what you've already got there.
1: So, with the immune system benefits of reishi, uh, which seem to be the primary ones, are there any other top benefits of that particular mushroom? Of
0: reishi? Yeah. Well, well it's also, you know, again, when we're talking about the liver. It's kind of a purifying the liver. So it will help clean your liver. That's another uh, one of the major benefits of Reishi. But I, I think the immunological benefit is really the top. And, and here's what's really interesting you know, immunological benefits are measured by uh, beta glucans because they're the key component in all medicinal mushrooms that, that give you that immunological uh, modulation or stimulation, which creates immune cells. Reishi and turkey tail in all of our testing and we test for all of our products for beta glucans they're the highest in beta glucan wow and, and i'm sort of like wow isn't that interesting even scientific testing sort of demonstrates that yeah look at that those two are the highest in the beta glucans and i'm just thinking that that is really cool That's now lions mane not lions mane is 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 different in terms of it's been used in china for for um memory loss. It's been used for dementia. Uh, it's, it's, and the interesting thing about lion's mane is that there was a study, you know, you don't get many clinical trials with herbal products. It's expensive. And, yeah. and you do a clinical trial, then all the people who didn't do the clinical trial get to use your data, right? So they did a clinical trial in Japan with lion's mane and they had two groups. They actually had a control group Thirty people each, and and the one group got three grams a day of lion's mane mushroom powder. The other group nothing. After th- and they gave them a whole battery of tests, and then at the end of the thirty days they tested them again. The group that was taking the lion's mane did significantly better in the testing, significantly better than the control group. Wow! Now here, here's the here's the kicker. 30 days later, after stopping the lion's mane, they tested them all again. the group that tested so well with
1: the lion's mane was back down to the
0: normal level.
1: Interesting. Yeah, Interesting, I know. Well, that that's also interesting because as we were talking about earlier, that there's speculation, I guess, anecdotal evidence to support the idea that uh, lion's mane would have a synergistic relationship with the psychoactive mushrooms, yeah. the psilocybin. Yeah, so yeah, that yeah. kind of makes sense, you know, if they're both sort of centered in the brain and yeah. mental acuity and sharpness and visual acuity and all of that kind of stuff, that makes yeah. sense. Uh, okay, so lion's mane, uh, reishi, what else do we cover? We, we uh, cordyceps. cordyceps. Let's talk about chaga mushroom, which chaga. is one that I've been using every day for years and years in various okay, forms. Okay,
0: okay. Well, well, let me say a couple things about, about chaga to start it off. First of all, Right now chaga is what we call in the industry the flavor of the month. Okay. Okay. And if it's you go out there, if you go out there, if you go out there on the web, it's like, oh, chaga's the king of mushrooms. Is there anything chaga doesn't do? Nope. It does it all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, right. it's what we call the panacea. Right. Man. Luke, I hate that's that kind of talk. Right. To me, that's like pure marketing speak. Look, I sell chaga. It's great if you want to buy it, but I'm not going to hype that up like these hypesters out there that are marketing it. And it's all just pure marketing. And so, so don't believe the hype, everybody. Chaga is a great mushroom, though. It's been used for hundreds of years in uh, Eastern Europe, Russia, as something for stomach problems. That was a big thing for chaga was stomach problems. And also it was a folk remedy for cancer. So it does have those types of benefits. And chaga is not actually a mushroom, which is really kind of the cool thing. It grows off the side of an infected birch tree. The birch tree has been infected. The mycelium has permeated that tree. And now it produces a canker. And it's just this black really irregular mass that you're just like, what the hell China is that? Kind of looks like a giant wart on the side, like a black wart on the side uh, of a white birch tree. Absolutely right. Right? Yeah. And, and so so it's, it's a canker. It's not a mushroom. And, and here's what's really interesting is that when that canker's produced... The mycelium is part of that, but the mycelium is only a small part of that canker that most of that is, is Woody tissue that has been consumed by the mycelium. It's still there But the actual amount of mycelium that's still in that canker is low. It might be uh, Some someone has looked at it under a microscope and found there's about 10% in there But the chaga There's been great research that was done on chaga in Finland because that's where they have a lot of birch. Finland, northern Russia there, a lot of chaga. They've been using it for a long time. So so I would say with chaga, more than anything else, I would say if you've got any kind of stomach type problems, use chaga. And 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 a lot of people say would talk about all sorts of these other things. It's like You know, please go away and let's just deal with the real things. It's just like with with mushrooms in general. I like to think there's four or five things that they do really well. And look, I understand scientists have taken all these mushrooms. They've fractionated them down into the smallest of compounds. They've tested them. They found they have all sorts of antiviral, antifungal, even some uh, benefits against the AIDS virus. But look... You're not going to get those kind of things from taking one of these supplements because they're doing it in, in, they're taking small amounts of a pure compound and testing it. So a lot of times companies will take that results from that and go, oh, mushrooms will cure AIDS. It's like, oh, shit, here we go again. You know, No, 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 let's not go there you know yes there's a lot of possibilities there but it's not going to happen by taking a couple of grams of a supplement or just eating mushrooms they have taken turkey tail for example in japan and china and they've they've manufactured a product one's called psk one's called psp and this product they use in cancer therapy but not alone They basically use it in conjunction with people that are going through chemo or radiation or something like that. And the whole idea is if it can help these people immunologically, then it's got a benefit there. And they show a certain amount of benefit, not complete. And maybe it might give you a couple of extra years or something, but it's not a panacea. It's not going to cure your cancer. Please, whatever you do, don't think you've got a cancer cure here. It's right. not, right? Now, I'm not saying that, that some people, you know, there things happen. Yeah, Some people could be taking one of these folk remedies and maybe they get a miracle cure. Maybe they get really amazing benefits. That's always possible, but I'm just saying... Please
1: don't build it up beyond what it really well, I is. I appreciate that approach, especially someone who makes their living selling mushrooms. I think it it shows a degree of integrity on your part because it would be in your financial best interest to say, <laughs> you know, to exaggerate the benefit of mushroom use. I have a couple of weird and weird slash specific questions for, for Chaga in particular. Uh, one <laughs> is I've heard... You know, around the interweb, and a lot of this stuff is conjecture and rumor, so you don't really know. Yep, but yep, yep. is that chaga, and it sort of relates to the cancer and chemotherapy thing, is that chaga uh, inherently can absorb radiation or tends to attract and absorb radiation, so that you don't want to use chaga, for example, from the Pacific Northwest or something like that, because it might have caught wind of the. Uh, Fukushima radiation. You want to get it from only from Siberia? Have yeah. you heard anything about chaga containing radiation? Well, you know, you know what. First of all, when you look back at Chernobyl and you look at the
0: radiation cloud that came out of Chernobyl sure. and and landing in all of these areas in Ukraine and and north uh, and contaminated a lot of the soils and stuff. Well, certainly mushrooms were some of the organisms that did pick up some of that radiation so in a lot of those zones it was like do not pick mushrooms in those zones and things
1: okay okay
0: now now here's what's kind of interesting is like i back about uh, when fukushima went off one of my customers in hong kong said to me okay jeff i want you to test all of our products because i'm a little bit afraid I, i want you to test it for radiation i bought a geiger counter Oh, cool. I got a Geiger counter. It's a it's a professional Geiger counter. How much are those for? Like this, a legit This one, one. was uh, this one was seven hundred dollars. Wow. Made in California.
1: It's a cool little unit. So so I can test things for radiation. I remember when after Fukushima, there were people going out on the coast in San Francisco by the Golden Gate Bridge and in L.A. and holding that up on the beach <laughs> and detecting radiation. I, I mean. It was pretty compelling. It made me not want to go jump in the ocean for a while after Fukushima. But you don't. I don't uh, know. You, you don't know really what? know. We
0: we we tested all the chaga that I've got, and I've got a lot of chaga yeah. from Russian stuff. And and there it was, was that yeah, was there was not a single okay beep perfect. at all. all right, so. And and. You know, so I would say, you know, and and then you know, there's another meme going out there that the chaga is threatened. That's the next thing I was going to get to, and and that you you shouldn't wildcraft it. Instead, you should buy our other products that are not wildcrafted. Again, Ah, you know, it's one of those types of things. Chaga is not threatened. Oh my lord, the birch forests out there are vast. You know, you know where chaga gets gets uh, harvested <laughs> along the logging roads. Uh, you're you've got a ladder, you got an axe. You're like, right. how deep in that forest are you going to go? Interesting, Not very deep. In fact, what they say is in uh, north of Russia, where they've been harvesting chaga for uh, quite a while. People now have to go a little bit deeper into the forest to get the chaga, right? right? But the chaga forest in Siberia, the chaga forests in Canada. I, I had a conversation with United Plant Savers. That's their business. They look out there, what's threatened and what's not. I had a conversation. Ah, oh, I was told, oh, you know what? This woman called me and she said, in the forest that around her, people are out there harvesting this chaga and they're, and they're you know, they're going to get, they're going to take them all. Yes. You know, like, okay, there's some small forest in some suburban area where people are harvesting chaga. And I'm like... Hold on a minute. You're getting these anecdotal information. There was a study done in 2004. uh, This person was at Oregon State University. Went off to Siberia, interviewed people all over the place, and interviewed people in the United States. Ultimately said, you know what? It is not even close to anywhere near the possibility that there's a problem with overharvest of chaga. And there isn't. Let me tell you, they're absolutely that's not. The,
1: I'm glad to hear that because that's the sense that I, that I got. I mean, it's almost like, you know, the scarcity of water and the scarcity of crude oil and these things. I'm a big spring water harvester. Yeah, yeah, been, yeah, yeah. I mean, you go up to the headwaters of the Sacramento River in Mount Shasta, there's no shortage of goddamn water. <laughs> I mean, it's like there's springs all over the world that have been producing for at least hundreds, if not yeah, thousands of yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. And then I discovered recently something called primary water, which is now... Scientifically validated, and that's water that's never actually been on the surface of the planet. No, it's yeah, yeah, the planet yeah. actually makes water. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. We're, we're realizing that all of this business about um, uh, fossil fuels being made by decayed dinosaurs is total bullshit. There's plenty of oil in the world. I mean not to say that you know I'm all for alternative yep, sources yep, sure, of sure, you know, less pollution I absolutely. love the planet and all that but I'm just saying there there is a mm-hmm. lot of uh greenwashing going on and a lot of they sort have of have to be very careful with the a information a lot of propaganda yes because people have good intentions I think in some things and you know like I said if I have a a birch forest down the road from me and a bunch of hippies are going and harvesting chaga, I'm going to feel like, from my perspective, that the world is under Absolutely. chaga threat and these poor birch trees. But really, Absolutely. if you fly over some areas of Canada or Siberia, ah, I mean, you're going to see man. thousands of square miles of birch forest that are no human beings ever going to get to to get chaga. Well, not
0: only that, in every forest, they, they've figured that about 20% of the trees are infected with chaga. Here's, here's what happens, too. You take that
1: canker off, it grows back in that same place. That was my next question. It grows does back. It, I was going to ask, does it kill the tree if no, you take no, that? It, no, the tree is
0: actually dead standing.
1: Okay. The tree is dead Because it's standing. already infected. Well,
0: well, think about it. I mean, it's like you've got something that's infected and it's got this manifestation and you yank that off. Okay. You might even be doing it a favor, but the fact is, is that tree has that mycelium that's permeating the tree, the chakra is just a man, uh, manifestation of that infection.
1: Right. Okay? Right. That
0: tree is going to, at some point, that that wood will get so weak at a certain point, the tree will collapse or it will break in two, but right. that's what will happen to okay. it. And, and, and this is just, even in the forest where I live, we have trees on my property. I live in an in a old-growth forest. I have trees that actually occasionally will just... Collapse and I go out there and look at them and I go, Oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's that been, you know, it's like the inside is punk from the fungus
1: that yeah. has basically been consuming it. Right. That's just, I that's, mean, this that's is, nature. This is, that's it's kind of how nature. Works. In order for one thing to live, uh, uh, another thing has to die. Well, it's just, well,
0: you know, it's just part of it's, how yeah. it all works. I mean, I yeah. mean, you know, Luke, yeah. everything is consuming everything. It is. You know, everything it is, is consuming. And when, when
1: I'm finished, I'm just going to be consumed by something, right? Yeah. That's just how it works. So the last thing I want to touch on here, because I, I feel like this is, I don't I think we've, like this is the encyclopedia of all things mushroom here. I'm very proud of this episode and what we've been able to deliver to people so far. There's one thing I do want to cover and that is the extraction methods of consuming medicinal mushrooms. Yeah. So I, as I understand, some of them are extracted with alcohol. Some of them are extracted with hot water and that would be a dual extraction if you do yep. both. Yep. yep. And then... Some mushrooms, it seems, might just be ground up and you just eat them. So, run me through some of the basics of, you know, say reishi, chaga, uh, lion's mane, um, cordyceps. We didn't really get too much into turkey tail, but what are yeah. some of the extraction methods? Like, could I take this bag <laughs> of cordyceps, grind it up, and eat it, or does it need to be extracted with water? Oh alcohol? no, you
0: know what? You know what? I mean, think about extraction. Is is okay? Like, it's like a tea. You could get the benefits from that tea if you ground it up to a powder and consumed it. You could be getting the benefits of those herbs, just like you could be getting the benefits of those mushrooms if you just ground them up and ate them. Tea is just a great delivery system. Fast-acting extraction is a great delivery system, too, because it can, it can in a sense, pre-digest those herbal materials for you instead of having to let your body do it you can have them pre-digested and the other thing about extraction is oftentimes, if you're just taking a couple of grams of ground up herb there's not enough of the actives in there to help you so extractions oftentimes will concentrate. For example, let's take 10 kilos of dried herb and we turn it into one kilo of herbal extract. And, and listen, when, when my company does that, and with most extraction companies do it, not all, what you're trying to do is you're trying to come up with an extract that has a similar profile to the actual herb. It's concentrated, so you don't have to take... 100 grams of it, you can just take a couple grams of it because now you've got a lot more of the active compounds in that smaller amount. So that's really a lot of the reason why we have extracts. In China, they use a lot of, of just water extracts because they've got a whole bunch of different herbs and here's your medicine. And so you throw them in a pot and you, yeah. you boil them up like crazy. When I first started going
1: to Chinese medicine doctors, they look at your tongue go, oh, okay, yeah, I know what you yeah, need. And yeah. then they walk away with a little brown paper bag <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: of schizandra berries yeah. and you know sliced uh, reishi and all this stuff. They and put you, all sorts of things it. in yeah, there, right? Yeah, it's fun. It's yeah, kind of cool. Yeah, it, is it feels cool. very like ancient folk medicine <laughs> kind of practice. Absolutely. So is. In that sense, you're going home and doing your own Kind of primitive you, extraction. It, well, it's not even primitive. I'm, I mean a tea or
0: a soup. A soup is an extraction, right? I mean, you're putting something in there. You, you're pulling out the water-soluble compounds, and you're drinking them. And a lot of the the compounds that are not water-soluble, well, well, oil is not water-soluble, but that doesn't mean you're not going to get the oil if you leave it in your soup, Right. And what happens with certain mushrooms like reishi and chaga is they have some compounds that are not water soluble. Um, the water will pull out a lot of the triterpenes that, uh, uh, and it will pull a lot of them out, but there's still some of those that we need alcohol to get everything out of it. So that's where we'll use alcohol. Most mushrooms don't need a dual extraction. You don't need alcohol for a shiitake or a my or something like that. That is absolutely unnecessary. Most of our products are, we have two lines. One is just a straight water extract that keeps the mushroom powder with the product. So we we cook it once at, um, say, around 170 degrees Fahrenheit. We'll cook it once for three hours. It's powder. We'll concentrate the fluid down. Then we'll send that fluid, that, that kind of syrupy fluid, and the powder to a spray dryer. Dries it out. One kilo of dry mushroom in, one kilo of powder out. Our more concentrated products might be eight kilos and and one out. And in in that case, we will either water extract it three times or we'll water extract it twice and then once with alcohol. And because we're concentrating it down, we can't keep eight kilos of fiber with that. So the fiber at this point, we figure that fiber is pretty much spent. And so everything gets filtered out, and then we just have the pure extract at that point. So those are our two major products. And is
1: this where you see, like, because I always read the labels of everything that I'm going to ingest or anything, God forbid, I put on my website. Is this where you see, like, a 10 to 1 extraction? It'll be, like, 10 colon 1? Yes,
0: that's what that means. And remember, you know, believe it or not, some companies will actually say 10 to 1, and they'll be saying 10 kilos of wet
1: mushroom ah, sneaky bastard.
0: Sneaky, you see? So yeah, that's something yeah. you have to be aware of too. Right. Because, no, those ratios are defined as dry to dry. Right. You know, so some very sneaky companies will use wet to dry. And if it's 90% water, actually what that is, it's not a 10 to 1. It's just a 1 to 1. Right. And, and who knows? I mean, the other thing with a lot of extraction companies is they will put a carrier with it. And the carrier is uh, something like maltodextrin or dextrin. It's a starch of some sort. And that can be up to 50% of the product. I've seen some products where the
1: the carrier material was 80% of the product. So like the, the extract goes into a powder, that would be the carriers like maltodextrin is a powder, that's right, that's kind of right. like a starchy powder. That's so right. now you actually have something that can be encapsulated or put into well, a jar. Well,
0: even, even without that starch, you see, like with our products, we don't use carriers at all. And so that will come out, it'll be a fine powder and that fine powder will get put into capsules. Bottles and so on. So, so with your
1: with your higher concentration extractions, then essentially that's the spray dry of the extraction, and that's turned into a powder.
0: Correct. That's right. That's right. That, that fluid is is going out. It's sprayed into this big cyclone which is very hot and it just falls to the bottom. Right. But even our, even our one-to-one extracts, w- the same thing, even with the mushroom powder and that fluid. You know, when it goes up there, basically that fluid is evaporating and that powder's falling down, but you're getting that now has been pre-digested. Right.
1: So right. That's,
0: that's really the difference between the two.
1: Which is necessary because if you're looking at this this freshy mushroom in front of us, I mean, I like to see anyone try and chew on that thing. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, it's yeah. like hardwood. I mean, yeah, you're yeah, not going to yeah. get and chaga. I mean, just, that's right. It's a funny, you know, funny thing. And I want to see what your take is on this. Uh, I have seen some companies, and you know, God bless them. I'm sure they they think they're doing the right thing. Maybe they are, but I'll see like a chaga powder that's like a ground up powder, and I've even taken my chaga chunks that i buy you know off ebay or etsy i find a buyer that i that i trust for it's not going to be moldy yeah, and stuff yeah, like yeah, that yeah. and i'll buy it just 5 pounds at a time yeah. and i'll put them in my vitamix or no no i'm sorry not my vitamix i tried that that didn't work don't do that <laughs> don't at all don't do that it'll break your vitamix yeah it's don't do that but i'll put <laughs> I'll break them up a little bit, yeah, you know, with yeah, a hammer. Yeah, I yeah. put them in a rag that, and I hit with, with a hammer. hammer. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Okay,
1: on a like a piece of you concrete. Okay, <laughs> then I put those in a coffee grinder and I'll make myself like a chaga powder and then I'll boil that yes. and I get a really dark yeah, extraction yeah, yeah, a lot yeah, faster. Yeah. But what I see is some companies are encapsulating chaga, just ground up chaga mushroom. Yeah, and yeah, I feel yeah. like that's like eating ground up sponge. Like, is my body going to be able to do the extraction itself and get the, get the medicinal compounds out of that? Well, you know what, That
0: that's what I call lowest common denominator. Okay. And and you're not going to get a lot of benefits out of that because you're not going to be eating enough of it to make right. a real I mean, difference. if you're
1: taking four little ground up chaga capsules versus me taking a pound of oh, yeah, chaga yeah, yeah. in my crock pot, I'm, yeah. getting, I'm getting like a black tar well, tea out of you it. See, almost, you're you know? doing it the right way because what you're doing
0: is you're making one nice big batch and you're taking that dark fluid and you're going, okay, I've got five kilos in here and I've got, you know, four liters or a gallon or something. And so you can kind of um, measure the doses. You stick it in your fridge. Sure. Every so often you pull it out, you pour it in, you know how much to, to take. And there you are. You got that nice, powerful extract in your, yeah. you're taking. And that's a, that's a, That's a fantastic way to do it because you don't want to have to be boiling it up every time you want it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, no, that's, it's, that's, that's it's a of it, boil
1: Luke. time too with the chakra. So I just, I put in a crock pot, I boil it, put it in a big giant glass dispenser with like a, um, a spout yeah, on the yeah, bottom. Yeah, and I keep yeah, that in the fridge yeah, yeah. all the time. And then I freeze the chunks yeah, from that extraction. Yeah. I put them in a Ziploc bag, put them in the freezer. Next time I'm going to make chaga tea, I reuse those and I'll probably reuse them. I don't know, five to ten times and still get a really dark chaga tea Well, out of it. and I think you and I talked about then that cut a little them bit. And I cut them into smaller pieces y- yes. when they're wet, too, to get more e- surface Exactly. Exposed. And that's what you do with a
0: reishi, the same thing. Right. You know, the first time you do it, okay, you know, really with a reishi mushroom, you almost have to take a hatchet to break it into pieces. Or a saw, you know. Right, like, right. Like I've
1: actually seen a table saw where we're just like. zzzz, <laughs> well, zzz. I've only ever <laughs> I've only ever made a tea like extraction myself with reishi after it's already sliced up. Yeah, well, it's, yeah. Those little bacon looking yeah, pieces, you know. And so after the first extraction, it's
0: gotten like a lot softer. Then you can take a knife and you go boom, 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 boom. So you can keep chopping it finer as you go along. But I think the thing too is if you if you want to do it all at once. What you do is you just, okay, you boil it up for a number of hours. You pour it off, add more water. You can do that until, like you're saying, until the water doesn't
1: turn anymore. Right. Okay. And then, and you, then know. you know it's pretty you much got it's all the medicine It's done. Yeah, absolutely. All right. In, in closing, uh, and I want to leave on a negative note, <laughs> but <laughs> I've also noticed there are some companies producing and, you know, mushrooms or selling mushrooms where mm, I'm not, like I don't taste a lot of the medicine like some rishi products that I've had some that are like yours that I mean you put a teaspoon of that extract in your mouth it's like wow or if you put a teaspoon in a glass of water it's really really bitter the the water's going to become dark but I've seen some that has this like a bunch of mycelium or starch there doesn't really appear to be any actual mushroom left in there and you you know I know you have you're a polite guy you, you don't seem like one that's going to put everyone else down to sell your own stuff but what are some things people could look out for in terms of just inferior mushroom products and how to tell the difference?
0: Well, you know, I talked about this earlier a bit when I was talking about going to China and, and getting my mushrooms produced over there. What happens is because they're, they're so expensive to produce, companies in the United States will actually grow out the mycelium on sterilized grain. So they'll actually take grain, they'll they'll put it in a plastic bag, they'll sterilize it, they'll inoculate it with mycelium, and then they'll incubate it uh, in a laboratory for 30 to 60 days. And when the grain is, is fully covered with mycelium, then they'll take that out, they'll dry it, they'll grind it to a powder, and they'll sell it as a mushroom. And the fact is, is that they don't take the grain out of it. So most of the product ends up being starch from all of the grain in that product. And, right. and the, 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 the thing that's so, so difficult uh, that about sucks. this for the consumer is that when they sell it, you look at the label and it says reishi mushroom, and it's got a picture of a reishi mushroom. And some of these products actually have a little circle that says made with 100% organic mushrooms. There's no mushrooms in it at all. The, and that's the thing is they do not actually grow mushrooms. They just grow the mycelium. They grow it on sterilized grain. Some companies will tell you when you turn it over after you've thought you bought a mushroom product and you turn it over and the supplements facts says mycelium and you go, oh yeah, okay. And then you go down to the fine print where it says other. Some companies will actually say myceliated grain. Um, They might say oats. That's the tell. That's where you know that what you've actually got is not a mushroom product at all. And let me tell you, Luke... We're here at Paleo FX. We've got people here that are totally into Paleo and no grains and all of that. And they come up to me and they say, "Oh yeah, I'm taking this great mushroom product." <laughs> oh, and you're like, "You're eating oh, a bunch of rice every hey, day." Hey, Listen, I talked to somebody like that this morning, and he and I said, "Oh yeah, so so who makes it?" And he told me the the company, and this company right now is is pretty popular. And and, and I said, "Well." Man, I hate to tell you this, but that's, see that over there? See that bag of grain with the mycelium? That's what you're taking. It's mostly grain powder. And he's like, man, he was just like his, I, I just kind of blew his mind. I said, I said uh, how does it taste? Does it taste uh, really mushroom? He said, oh, well, you know, it tastes kind of bland. <laughs> it's got kind of a light color. I said, look, try some of our actual mushroom powders here. They don't
1: taste bland. The real thing is anything but bland. No, it's not
0: bland. And I was telling you that some of these companies actually say, our mushroom products go with everything. They don't even taste like mushroom. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, why are you saying that? They don't taste like mushroom. Well, if it doesn't taste like mushroom, that's a red flag right away. Yeah. And if it's bland, you know, I mean, there's so many reishi products out there that are this myceliated grain. And I tell people, do you know what tempeh is? Yeah. Tempeh is actually a fungus that is grown on cooked soybeans. That's the exact same process that these people are using. They're growing a fungus on cooked grain. And, And tempeh is a food. You look at it and it's white with mycelium and you open it up and you see all the soybeans in there. Man, if you dried that out, let me tell you, what you would see is a little bit of white stuff and mostly soybeans. And that's the same with these products. It's mostly grain powder. You're being fooled. I hate to tell you that, everybody. Please, please, please look at the label really closely. Taste the product if you've already bought it. And and here's the other wonderful test I have for people. It's called the iodine starch test. And and we actually sell little test kits, but you can just go to the pharmacy and you can get a little bottle of iodine. Take it home. Take that uh, so-called mushroom product. Empty out a couple capsules into maybe a quarter cup of water. Stir it, it. Let it get in there a bit. Stir it up good. Put 10 drops of iodine in there. If there's starch, that will turn black. Absolutely black. A mushroom has no starch. Take one of our products. Now now reishi, we've got a reishi product that's already dark, so that doesn't work so well, but our other products are not dark like that. Put our products that, or even or you got dried shiitake at home. Throw it in a grinder, put it into the water, stir it up, drop the iodine in. All you'll see is the iodine color. There's no reaction cuz mushrooms do not have starch. Interesting. And these other products are are up to 60 to 70% starch, and what happens is we want beta-glucans. These products have, on average, through our testing, about 5 or 6% beta-glucan. Oh, bummer. Yeah, yeah, it is just crazy. You're getting the exact opposite. Mushrooms are, are as much as 60% beta-glucan. So, I mean, think about that for a second. You've got products that rather than having a lot of beta-glucan, they have hardly any beta-glucan. Instead, they have all sorts of starch. Mushroom has no starch.
1: So it's the absolute (laughs) opposite. Right. It's the opposite of what you're trying to actually achieve. That's
0: exactly right. And I feel feel really bad for people, especially people with life-threatening illnesses that are looking... To a mushroom product, maybe to help them with immune issues or right. something like that. And they bought this and they've listened to somebody out there who said how wonderful their product is and they believe these people. And then they, take, they buy this product, they're taking it, and you know what? It's just nothing but uh, uh,
1: grain powder. Well, on that note, uh, you know, as I said, I don't want to end on a negative note, but there is a silver lining. Now we have a way to test. We know what to look for. We can go with a company like yours or any other that is doing it right. And one of the main things that I like to do on the show is do a bit of myth busting and help people not to waste their time and money with practices or products that actually don't work because time is a finite resource, you know, time, at yeah. least in this lifetime. Yeah. So it's like, I'm always about doing the best of the best of the best until I find something better. And that's kind of the purpose. Well, so, and, you know. and
0: people want to get the benefits from mushroom. And, yeah. and what I'm trying to do is to educate people of that. I'm not saying come and buy my products. Look, buy your mushroom product wherever you want. But at least be educated to where you know what you're getting. Sure. And, and that's where we've got a bit of what I would call a bait and switch going on. And, and I, it's really sad. I feel very sorry. And, and you know, a lot of companies in, in the nutritional supplement industry are good companies. There's
1: just a lot of products out there that are not. Yeah. Well, now uh, this week, when this comes out, at least within the first week or so, about twenty thousand people are going to hear this message. So that's awesome. And twenty thousand people that are, the that are wiser. Spread so, the message. Uh, on that note, I got two closing questions. One of the three parters. So you've taught me, I think, everything I could ever want to know about mushrooms today. <laughs> as you have our audience, who have been three teachers or teachings in any area of your life that you might recommend our audience go check out to learn more about anything meaningful. Wow
0: that that that's really a good question. Let me let me think here because there's there've been so many teachers um let's see. Well, well you know, I guess in the in the beginning I I listened to and uh, read a lot from people like um Ram Das. Ram Das is an amazing uh, one teacher, of my you know, I mean I mean and his message of peace and love totally resonates. Awesome. So, so absolutely Ram Dass. He's one of them. Another one that that I highly recommend to people that I love as, as somebody who was opening up new worlds was, uh, certainly Terrence McKenna. He was really, really good. He's somebody I I recommend to people that they, they listen to. And, um, well, (laughs) you know, it's funny because I could say, My father, and interestingly enough, he taught me a lot of what not to do in my life. So that was a very great teaching too.
1: That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) That's the first first time I've heard heard it. contextualized in that way. Usually it's like, oh, my grandfather was my hero and he was such a great man that I looked after him. But yeah. I,
0: I love my, my father very much. He was a, he was a flawed individual in, in yeah. a number of ways. And, and you know, he taught me how
1: you know not to raise my children. That's and, uh, awesome. That's what I call like the that. boomerang effect. Yeah. It's like when you see a model of how to not do something effectively or with love, then, you know, you learn the opposite of that. So that's a really yeah, great yeah. example. And again, I, I love my father very dearly.
0: He ha- Like I say, he there was things about him. Him. And, and, you know, he was one of these guys that loved business and he was always totally into his business things and way more than he should have been. Yeah. And that, that also taught me about business. And, and my whole business is like, don't get so caught up in this. And, and making money is not what I'm here for. I could care less. I've always said, if you do what you're passionate about, it will come. Yeah. You know, just just
1: follow your passion. I love hearing that because that's <laughs> what we're doing right now. Yeah. This is my passion. And yeah, yeah. The, a little bit of money starting to trickle in yeah, here and there. Yeah, well, you it'll know. come. But it wasn't Luke. why I did it. Yeah, no, that's right. I did it because I just, I literally can't not talk to people like you yeah. and share your message with the world. It's just, I find things. I'm like, everyone's got to know this. This is <laughs> this is a game changer. So thank you for that. And uh, where welcome. can people find you? Website, social media, any links you want to share with the well, audience? Well,
0: uh, you can find us at uh, namex.com and a M-M-E-X.com, namex.com. namex.com. I've got com. a lot of information on the website. I've got great slideshows there where you can see all the mushrooms we grow and stuff like that. And then uh, you can get the products Off the internet, you can. We're a wholesaler primarily, but you can get the retail products at realmushrooms.com. Awesome. Or yeah. if
1: someone was producing products and they want to buy bulk, they could get them from they can, you guys they too, can too on the wholesale side. Absolutely. That's yeah, cool.
0: that's that's primarily what the business is all about, but we do offer the products so people can get them the straight stuff, nothing, no blends, no this, no that, yeah. just the straight stuff. No they can get it from realmushrooms.com.
1: Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad we, we've we been talking about this for a while. I'm glad we finally took the Absolutely. time to do it. Absolutely, yeah, it's, it's been really I'm fun. Hoping, I'm hoping our sound came out okay. As I said in the beginning of the show, guys, we're, we're literally sitting out in the middle of downtown Austin. So, uh, you know, you have to forgive us if there was a little bit of noise, but I'll tell you what, it was nice to be out here with you today and such a lovely setting. So thanks for your time. Thank you, Luke. Pleasure. I'm going to go out on a limb here, you guys, and guess that right about now you were dying to put some sort of mushroom into your body, right? When I sat down and did this interview, I immediately went inside Uh, went up to the Real Mushroom booth, which is Jeff's company. And by the way, I I don't... I guess, yeah, of course we talked about that in the interview, but it's not one of my ads, so I didn't plug it. But Real Mushrooms are legit, dude. I'm just going to come right out and say that. I I don't think I have them in my store yet, but God damn it, I should. Uh, Real Mushrooms are great because they are extracts. That's Jeff's company, just to recap. Uh, They're bulk herbs, you know what I'm saying? So they come in a huge pouch and you can just macro dose the reishi the cordyceps the lion's mane they're super super legit i don't talk about them that much but i use them all the time in my smoothies and stuff they're a little different than something like a four sigmatic which of course i love and has been a long time sponsor of the show but four sigmatic mushrooms come in little packets and they have other ingredients and they taste really good so you get the benefits of the mushrooms but they're a lower dose and they're single serving so i love both they just have a different purpose i you know it's Awkward to talk about uh, theoretically competitive companies, but they're really not because they do something totally different. So Real Mushrooms is hardcore. So definitely check them out. These guys have a lot of integrity and uh, I use their stuff all the time. I just unfortunately run out of it too fast. That's the problem when I get products that come in a pouch is I'll have literally tablespoons of it when a dose is half a teaspoon. <sighs> Once an addict, always an addict, I guess. I'm working on it, you guys. I just love goddamn mushrooms. So check that out. Uh, Real Mushrooms. I think they're realmushrooms.com. And uh, yeah. And you know, Jeff talked about it and things. So there you go. I'd like to thank our official sponsors though. Of course, Four Sigmatic. You know one thing I really like at Four Sigmatic actually? Of course, all their mushrooms. I mean, when when I tell you guys I use them every day, like... I wish I had a hidden camera in my place so you could see. I'm not bullshitting you, but I literally put the little Four Sigmatic mushroom things in my coffee every day. But I gotta say, one of my favorite products that Four Sigmatic makes is their, their dehydrated coffee packets that are infused with mushrooms. That's what I use when I travel for coffee, when I wanna make a bomb ass, really fast iced coffee, or just when I'm in a hurry. You know, sometimes I don't have time to like, Grind my beans, do the French press, the whole thing, and make my bulletproof coffee. So I'll use some on Onnit uh, MCT oil. It's like their creamer, and Onnit's one of our sponsors too. I'm getting to that, but I'll use the Onnit creamer uh, in my Vitamix with maybe two packets of the Four Sigmatic mushroom coffee. It's like a dehydrated coffee, instant coffee, right? And uh, and then I'll blend that up. And then I'll pour that over ice. Dude, you wanna talk about a bomb ass, like bulletproof coffee style coffee? Cause it's got that MCT oil from on it. I like the vanilla flavor. They also have a coconut flavor, a cinnamon flavor, and what's the other one? Almond, like an amaretto one. Now, I'm not that into the amaretto cause it just, I don't like that strong almond flavor. I like their, the coconut one and the vanilla one a lot. Those are my two favorites. Just personal preference. But that's really, really badass. So if you wanna check out Four Sigmatic, uh, go to foursigmatic.com forward slash Luke Story. Enter the code Luke at checkout and save 15%. It's a bomb ass discount. Speaking of On It, I love these guys, man. Really becoming tight with the old crew over at On It. And after someone who spent a lot of money at their website for a number of years, it's cool to actually get to know Aubrey and Kyle and the guys over there. And uh, I've got um, uh, John Wolf coming up, who's one of their big trainers over there. He's on the show coming up. So that'll be three On It. People on the show, just really solid people, solid company. You can go to onnit.com forward slash Luke and save ten percent off using the code Luke. And uh, yeah, like I said, there's a zillion things over at Onnit. I would get Alpha Brain. That's a good one. Try their MCT oils, the one I was talking about. You know, they have the flavored, like kind of coffee creamer ones, and then they just have straight up MCT, which is badass. And then we've got Athletic Greens. Go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Luke. This is another one of my favorites for travel. They come in these little travel packets. And if you hit them up, you're going to get 20 of those travel packets for free with your first purchase. So athleticgreens.com forward slash Luke. I like these products that come in little packets because they're really great to just throw in the car for road trips and Uh, taken on the airplane. I mean, I've made Four Sigmatic coffee on the airplane. Just put it in my water bottle and shake it up. And I have like a non-toxic super bomb coffee. Same with the green powders from Athletic Greens that come in little packets. Really good stuff. My sponsors are awesome. Love them all so much. I love you so much. Thank you for supporting the show. Check this out on Tuesday. Oh boy, i have got a bomb episode coming at you. Wabi Sabi Wellness. The Japanese Art of Perfectly Imperfect Living with Candice Kumar. She's super funny, super real, beautiful, amazing woman. Came over and hung out for a couple hours. She made me cookies. Woman after my own heart. And she's episode 159. We're getting up there, man. I'm creeping up on 200 episodes. So make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss Tuesday's episode. Last thing I want to tell you is I have a store on my site. A lot of people don't realize that. I can tell because I get so many direct messages and emails to my uh, website saying like, hey, what's the best this? What's the best that? What do you recommend for EMF protection? What do you recommend to keep your room cool? Um, You know, the best friggin' mushrooms, this, that, whatever it happens to be. I'm kind of a fanatic for biohacking technology and herbalism and all this stuff. And I'm like, uh, everything at lukestory.com forward slash store is my favorite stuff. That's why I made a store so that I could save myself time and not type out a million emails a day recommending the favorite things that I find in the world. So at lukestory.com forward slash store, you'll find a beautiful, completely laid out web store with different categories. So there's one for sleep. There's one for outdoors. There's one for... Um, EMF protection, blue light protection, nootropics, smart drugs, everything is categorized so that you can find what you're looking for based on which area of your life you wish to optimize. It's also a great way to support the podcast because some of the brands there uh, give me a commission if I make a sale through the link on my website. It's also great for you because not only do you save time and research... But you also save money on a lot of the things in my store. They have discount codes just like uh, our sponsors do when I run the ads on my show. So that's how that works. LukeStory.com forward slash store. Do yourself a favor. Get over there. Check it out. I've worked really hard for 22 years to find the best things in the world for your health and well-being, and they're all at my store. All right, you guys. I'll see some of you tomorrow night at Next Health, August 22nd. I'll see the rest of you at OsteoStrong the night after, August 23rd. You guys, be well peace out this episode of the lifestylist podcast was produced by podcastmasters.net